Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. You know, as we celebrate Jesus coming into the world and through his death on the cross and our belief in him being reconciled to God, uh, we also celebrate that through Jesus' presence in this world, the world was literally changed. John Ortberg, in his book about the ways that Jesus changes the world, points out six things that happened because of Jesus' presence in this world. Six ways that Jesus changed the world. Uh, one of them was that because of Jesus' presence in this world, the way women and children were treated was completely changed. During Jesus' time, children weren't seen very much as people. They could be disregarded, especially if it was a daughter. They could just be left out in the street. Through his teaching on children, people's view of children began to change, but also people's view of women. In fact, the early church gave such dignity to women that there was a disproportionate number of women in the early church over men. Jesus' presence changed the way people viewed women and children. But also, Jesus' presence started some very important institutions. Before Jesus came, education was reserved for the elite of the elite. And after Jesus came and influenced the world, people began to think differently about education, that education should be for everyone that was made in God's image. And if our mind is created by God, then we should actually love learning. And through Jesus' presence, people actually started universities like Cambridge and Oxford and Harvard. Those were actually started by Christians who wanted to show that we can love the Lord with our mind. And so they created places of learning. But also institutions that were hospitals. Uh, if you notice, a lot of hospitals start with saint or they have some sort of denominational affiliation. That did not exist. That type of thing did not exist before Jesus came and influenced this world. But people began to value compassion because of Jesus' presence and what he did. And so we see these institutions came about because of Jesus' presence. And then lastly, the values of humility and forgiveness infiltrated especially Western society. Humility and forgiveness weren't things that people looked up to as values to behold before Jesus. In fact, humility was seen as like a grotesque weakness. And forgiveness, no, you, no, no, you don't forgive. You treat your friends good and you treat your enemies bad so that they can learn they get what they deserve. But with Jesus' death on the cross, there had never been another act so humiliating that someone had embraced purposefully in order to bring forgiveness. And because of Jesus' humility and forgiveness, those are now values in our world that we think are normal. But it was not so before Jesus came into this world. And so even as we celebrate Jesus coming in, Jesus brings us salvation, but we also realize that his presence literally changed the world. And so we think about that during this season but we also think about this, how Jesus is not just changing the world, but how he is changing us. We think about this especially as we have this last Sunday of not only the year, but the decade, right? We're rolling into 2020, the year of vision. 
And we want Jesus to continue to change us and shape us and make us more like him. We want to see less and less sin in our life. We want to see more and more righteousness and love. And so today, we're going to be talking about how Jesus changes us. We're going to be looking at the story of John the Baptist when Jesus comes to be baptized by John and starts his public ministry. I'm going to pray for us, and then Jay is going to come and read our scripture. Lord Jesus, we worship you and we thank you that you gave us salvation. But not only that, you literally changed the world. We thank you for your power. We thank you that we get to be part of the movement that you started. And we ask that you'd shape us this morning and change us. And all God's people said, amen. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of the, the, voice of the one crying in the wilderness prepares the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore garments of camel's hair and leather and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, who stands, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have uh, prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do not you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice said from heaven, This is my beloved Son, with whom, I'm, with whom I am pleased. Word of God. Change is hard because it's hard to change. 
It's true. It's not that complicated. Change is hard because it's hard to change. Dr. Edward Miller is the dean of the medical school at Johns Hopkins University, and he had some interesting findings in a study. He found that people who needed a heart bypass surgery had trouble changing after they received the heart bypass surgery. Now, uh, if you have a heart bypass, it means that you have some sort of heart disease that you're at the end unless there's a radical change. And a heart bypass surgery can cost upwards of $100,000 if it's complicated. And what they found was people would come to the end where they needed something drastic to save their life. They received the heart bypass surgery. And then afterwards, they were said, you have to change your lifestyle. You have to change. You have to eat differently. You have to exercise differently or you'll be right back for another bypass. But what Miller found was two years after the bypass surgery, 90% of people had not changed to a healthier lifestyle. Miller would say, even though they know they have a very bad disease and they know they should change their lifestyle for whatever reason, they can't. Change is hard because it's hard to change. And that's true of our physical lifestyle, but it's also true of our spiritual lives as well. All of us know that there's things about us that aren't quite right, that we know we should get rid of. And yet at the same time, we allow those spiritual diseases and we allow those spiritual cancers to fester in our hearts and soul. And we don't seem to be able to change the very things that we want to change. We see the greed in our hearts and we don't want it there. And yet we don't know how to not be greedy. We see patterns of deceit spring up in our speech and how we interact with people, and we don't know how to get rid of them, so we justify them as little white lies. We see the hatred growing in our hearts towards people that have wronged us, and all we can do is say, I can't change, so it must be okay. We allow lust to grow in us, and it just seems so natural, and the world doesn't seem to care who you lust after, so it's hard to change. Change is hard because it's just hard to change. But as followers of Jesus, we are called to a life of life change. Life change is part of our calling as followers of Jesus. And so as we look at our text this morning, that's what we're going to explore and we're going to find three things in this text about Jesus and John the Baptist. First of all, change comes when you change your perspective to God's perspective. When you change your perspective to God's perspective. Secondly, change comes when you change your direction towards God's kingdom. And then lastly, change comes when you change your identity by beholding God's Son. In today's text, it centers on the ministry of John the Baptist. And we learn from the first few verses in our passage that John is a wild prophet. He doesn't go in Jerusalem. Rather, he goes outside of Jerusalem in the desert. While all the religious leaders of the day are living off the prophets of the religious system, John the Baptist is out in the desert. He's living off locusts and honey. He's wearing animal skins. And he doesn't really care who likes him. 
He's fulfilling the prophecy that we read at the beginning of the service of one who's come to prepare people for God arriving. And his message is simple. It is a message of change. His message is you must change because God is about to show up. And the people respond. In verse 5 and 6, it tells us that the people flocked from Jerusalem out to the desert near the River Jordan and began being baptized and confessing their sin. Confessing their sin. Confession is simply this. It is changing your perspective on your life to God's perspective on your life. It is thinking about your actions and attitudes, not from your perspective, but from God's perspective. See, most of the time, we are unwilling to change our perspective because we want to just be okay. My favorite commercial on TV right now is that one from Geico where it says, just okay is not okay. The, the surgeon comes in the room, and as he comes in the room, he goes, hey, guess who just got reinstated? And the guy who's about to get surgery is like, wait, what's going on? And uh, the surgeon asks the patient, hey, are you nervous? And the guy goes, yeah. And he goes, me too. We'll figure it out. And as he walks out, the, the narrator goes, just okay is not okay. See, for us as Christians, for us as followers of Jesus, we can't just look at our lives and go, it's all okay. We really have to change our perspective. One thing that will help you change your perspective is think about God stepping into your life. What would he see? How would he evaluate your thoughts, your attitudes, and your words? Someone told me this morning that uh, they got to meet someone famous over the weekend. And it made me think, what would you do if you got to meet someone who was incredibly famous? Like, who would that be? Think about that for a minute. Who would it be? What would you do, though, if that person who was incredibly famous wanted to come over to your house? Well, if it was just me coming over to your house, you might say, my house is okay. It's clean. But then as soon as that person who's incredibly famous says, I'm coming over, you might see things differently in your house. And you might go, you know what? It's not okay. I need to clean this up. There's stuff that's unclean there. There's stuff that's dirty over there. Because you're seeing your house from the perspective of this very important person. And what confession is, is it's inviting us to see our life from God's perspective. But oftentimes, we don't want to. Oftentimes, people just want to see their life from their perspective. And that keeps us trapped and never changing. Psychotherapist Dr. Linda Gottlieb said that over an 11-year period, from 1997 to 2008, she saw clients decline by 30%. And there was a lot of complicated factors under or why her clientele dropped over this 11-year period. But one reason that she was able to identify was this. Psychotherapy involves the long, hard work of facing our own issues, but many people would rather blame others for their problems. So people didn't want to look at their lives from another perspective. They just wanted to continue on and not change. And what Gottlieb said is, 
it used to be that people were unhappy about themselves and came to her and said, I'm unhappy with myself. I want to change. But she goes on to say that what's different is now people come to her because they want someone else to change or something else to change. And as their clientele dropped off, they hired a rebranding consultant. And the rebranding consultant said, don't talk about people wanting to change. Talk about change outside of themselves. So don't use things like, are you struggling with depression or anxiety? Because that would mean that you have to do something. Instead, talk about the difficult people out there. The rebranding consultant said, listen, you shouldn't call yourself a psychotherapist. Instead, call yourself a happiness locator. (laughs) And don't use the word change. Instead, talk about feeling empowered. Instead, talk about being at peace. Instead, say things like, don't you want to move through life struggles with ease? And so they changed the language of how they ran the business, but Godlywood said all that language, it was simply unrealistic, but it got people in the door. It got people in the door because people didn't want to see their life from another perspective, and they didn't want to change. Why is that? Why is it that we are afraid to admit who we really are? Well, I wonder if we're honestly afraid that if we confess who we really are, what we will be met with is shame. Maybe we've admitted who we really are to friends and we've been shamed. Maybe we've admitted who we really are to family and we've been met with shame. For a Christian who confesses their sin, they are never met with shame, but forgiveness and healing. Look at what John says in 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. To say there's nothing wrong with you, to say that you don't need to change, to say I don't need any, I don't have to confess any sins because I don't have any, is to be self-deceived and to call God a liar. But to confess your sins to the God who forgives is to be met with forgiveness. Not only that, but in Christian community, it's actually healthy to confess our sins one to another. James writes this in chapter 5. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Can you imagine a community of people who aren't afraid to admit who they really are? During our experiment with Life Group over the the fall, we actually had one night where we just simply confessed our sin. And it was this wonderful moment where everyone's like, oh, you got problems too. Well, I guess what? I got problems. And all of a sudden, the group bonded in a new way because everyone saw, no, we're not theoretically sinners. We're actually sinners. And we all need forgiveness. And as we confess our sins, we find healing together. Confession means changing your perspective to God's perspective about your life, about your actions, about your attitudes. And confession is really the start of change. It's really the start of change. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? 
As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. But it has a partner. It has something that comes with it. The next thing that comes with confession is repentance. Repentance. And repentance simply means this, a change in your direction towards God's kingdom. A change in your life's direction towards God's kingdom. In verse 2, John says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what John is getting at is when Jesus comes, he is bringing the government of heaven to earth. And people are doing their thing, they're living their life, they're building their own kingdom, they're doing things the way they want to. But when Jesus comes, God's righteousness and love and justice will invade the earth through him and his ministry. And John is calling people to give up their way of living and be ready to adopt God's way of living when heaven invades earth through Jesus. And so repentance means turning away from myself and my kingdom, and my way of doing things, and turning to God, and his kingdom, and his way of doing things. If I'm living a lifestyle of greed, it means turning to the God of generosity, and learning from him how he's been generous to me in order that I might grow in generosity to others. If I'm stuck in deceit, it means turning to the God of truth, who loves truth, And learning how to tell the truth through him. If my life is marked by revenge and hatred, it's turning to the God who loves to forgive his enemies. And learning about forgiveness through Jesus Christ. If my life is full of sexual lust, it's turning to the God who created sex and loves purity. And learning how to live out my sexuality from him. That repentance, that turning away from our kingdom to the way God does things in his kingdom is the beginning of the Christian life. When you become a Christian, you do a 180, and you turn away from yourself, and you turn away from your kingdom, and you turn to God and his way of doing things. It's the beginning of the Christian life, but it's also an everyday, ongoing part of the Christian life. There's one major turn, but then there's a lifestyle of turning. As we learn more about God and more about ourselves, we will see that there are more and more areas where we are living for our own kingdom rather than living for God's kingdom. And so the Christian life really involves a daily turn from our sin and from our kingdom to God's righteousness and his kingdom. This is what John the Baptist pokes at the Pharisees and Sadducees for. In verse 7 through 10, he goes after them because they show up to watch the baptisms, but they want to evaluate what's going on rather than participate in the repentance. And so John says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, the Pharisees believed because of their relationship with Abraham, they were Abraham's descendants, that they were just the good guys. And that everybody else was the bad guys or lesser than them. And what John is saying is, listen, your relationship with God is not based on Abraham. Your relationship with God should manifest itself through your humility, through your willingness to repent. But you're not willing to repent. You're here to watch everyone else and evaluate what's going on. You're standing outside the need to repent. 
And that's a good warning for us because if you and I say we have outgrown repentance at a certain point, we will not grow anymore. We won't change if we think that we've changed past our need to repent. Because there's always stuff in our lives that God can identify that don't line up with his kingdom, that don't line up with his character. And so part of our job as Christians is to learn to repent. It's funny, a couple weeks ago, in one week, there were all sorts of politicians from all different sides of the political spectrum, and they were all using scripture to point out how the other side should repent. And I was like, okay, guys, um, you think because of your affiliation that everyone else is the bad guys. What would it look like for you to actually use scripture to evaluate yourself and call out what's wrong in your neck of the political woods and repent of that? See, there's always a tendency for us to think that we are the good guys and and everyone else is the bad guys and we don't need to repent. But repentance is our opportunity to learn from God. And look, as you look at 2020, I know a lot of you have prayer requests that you're asking God to do in 2020. Some of God's answers to your prayers in 2020 might be repent. Might be you're seeking after your own kingdom. You're doing things your way rather than my way. God's answer to your prayers might be you need to turn away from your kingdom and your way of doing things and do things my way and follow my kingdom. And so as you think about your life in 2019, as you think about going into 2020, what attitudes or actions do you need to repent of? What things do you need to break up with in your life in order to better follow God, in order to walk in this lifestyle that we have as Christians, this lifestyle of repentance. One of the unique things about John's baptism was that it was a participation for everyone. Baptism wasn't new at that point. Uh, Many people were baptized who were not part of the Jewish people to become part of the Jewish people. But what's unique about John's baptism is he's saying everybody needs it because it's a baptism of repentance and everybody needs to repent. Everybody needs to turn and look towards God coming. But part of John's message wasn't just repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Part of John's message was there is a better baptizer coming and a better baptism on the way. In verse 11, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And what John's saying is his baptism is a symbolic washing. But when Jesus comes, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit, and it won't be an outward cleansing. It will be an inner renewal of the heart. See, people showed up to be baptized by John because they wanted to change their life direction, but John's saying when Jesus comes and baptizes with the Holy Spirit, God's new life will be infused in you. People went to John because they wanted to be repentant towards God, but when Jesus baptized with the Spirit, it would put God in you. And so 
John is saying there is a better baptism coming because Jesus, when he shows up to baptize, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And when John mentions that Jesus will baptize with fire, he doesn't mean passion. Like, he doesn't mean, like, I want to be baptized with fire. Yeah. What he means is a purifying judgment. A purifying judgment. In verse 12, he goes on to explain what it looks like. His winnowing fork, in other words, Jesus' winnowing fork, is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In other words, when Jesus comes... He is coming to separate the unrepentant from the repentant. And those who are repentant, he's going to purify on the inside. And those who do not repent are going to burn away like chaff. It's actually a really harsh word. And so when John sees Jesus actually coming, he is expecting Jesus to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But what Jesus says to John shocks John. In verse 13 and 14, Jesus comes from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John is shocked that the better baptizer with the better baptism would come to him and ask to be baptized by him. Because John knows that one of the things Jesus is going to do is sift out the unrepentant. And yet Jesus gets in the line to be baptized along with all the repentant. This is like a car mechanic who knows how to perfectly run his car, getting in line to have his car fixed, with people who have never bothered to change their oil. This is like the most academic scholar getting in line with people who are learning to read. This is like the judge getting in line, not to receive people in order to pronounce the judgment, but rather getting in line to be judged with the guilty. So John is shocked. Why are you in line to get baptized by me? I need to be baptized by you. But then Jesus says this in verse 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Part of Jesus' mission was to come and perfectly love God and perfectly love neighbor on behalf of people who failed to love God and failed to love their neighbor. His mission was to come and be the savior of the world for sinners. And so, as someone who's coming to identify with sinners, he gets in line with them. See, the gospel doesn't start with, get out of your sin and come to me. It starts with Jesus saying, I come to you to get you out of your sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Change starts in our life when we realize 
that Jesus is the one who moves towards us. He identifies with us as sinners, even though he is sinless. And so as we think about change in our lives, definitely we want to change for Jesus. At the same time, we realize that we can change because of Jesus and because he comes to us as sinners and identifies with us. And this is the moment when Jesus' public ministry starts. This is the moment when God spotlights his son. In verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, what, what are we to behold here in this picture as God spotlights Jesus who's getting in the water, the baptismal line, and identifying with sinners? Well, well certainly there's something about the Trinity in this picture. Uh, here is one of the pictures in Scripture where there's the Father, there's the Son, and there's the Spirit, all there in one place. And that's helpful because there's teaching that says that, the, the, that God's actually just one person with three different modes. It's called modalism. But God's actually three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but one God. And here we see that this picture, they're, they're all there. Jesus is part of the, the Trinity. But there's more than that. There's more than that. Jesus' baptism is mentioned in all four Gospels because God wants to get our attention. See, God, as we know, had been silent for 400 years. And angels showed up to give prophecies to Zechariah and Joseph, but it was angels speaking, not God. But here, at this moment, after 400 years of silence, God speaks. And what does he say? Verse 17, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. When God speaks after 400 years of silence, the language that he's using isn't just that he likes Jesus. This is referring to the Old Testament in Psalm 2. And what we're seeing is a coronation ceremony of a king. The language, my beloved son, is the language that God the Father would use of the Israelite king when he was coronated. And so in this moment, we're seeing that after 400 years of silence, what God says is this is the one. This is the king. This is the Messiah. He is the one I choose to reign and rule over all things. But this king, who has the nations as his inheritance, who rules over the universe, is the same one who gets in the water and identifies with sinful people. And it is in that act that God says, this is the beloved son, this is my beloved son. And at the moment when he's in the water identifying sinners, God the Father says, I am well pleased in him. As we think about 2020, change your perspective by confessing your sins. Change your direction by repenting. But change your identity as you behold God's only son. 
See, if God was well pleased with King Jesus identifying with us, what that means is King Jesus is our identity before God. See, if your faith is in the Son, then you are a child of the Father. If you rest in the one that God calls beloved, then the Father's love rests on you too. And if you trust the sinless king, then that king is also cleansing you from sin. If you rest in the one who the Spirit descends upon, it means that the Spirit is present in your life as well. Change your identity as you behold God's Son. As we go into the new year, we want to be confessing our sins. We want to be repenting of our sins, but we want to change our perspective and see ourselves from the perspective of God, which is you are in Jesus Christ, the beloved Son. I don't know what 2020 holds for you. Uh, there's a lot of people who are saying because it's 2020, it's the year of vision, or it's the year of victory. I'm not a prophet. I don't know. My guess is that for each of your lives, you will have some hard things in 2020, and you will have some great things. You will have some people that bless you and some people that betray you. You will have some changes that are good and some changes that are bad because that's just the way life works. But as you go into 2020, behold King Jesus and believe who you are in him. Your life will change in all sorts of ways over the next year. But your identity in Jesus Christ will not. Because it is who God says you are when you trust in him. As you go into 2020, confess your sins. Repent of them and turn towards God's kingdom. But behold the beloved son, and let your identity rest in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to identify with the likes of us and save us. We thank you that you are the king of the universe and yet you didn't stay in a lofty throne. Rather, you descended to identify with broken people. And so we take great joy in you we trust you. We believe you. We ask that you would help us follow you in greater ways, not to earn our identity from you, but because of the identity that you've given to us. As we understand your love, help us to confess greater sins. Help us to repent with more fervency, not to earn your love, but because you've given us your love. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcasts. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.